0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke <clears throat> chapter 11. And this morning, as we start the 11th chapter of Luke, we will be taking the first of a two part look at prayer. In the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11, our Lord, who in Luke's gospel has been seen much in prayer himself, will turn and instruct his disciples in what is often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually the Disciples' Prayer. Unless it's the Lord teaching, that's what you mean by Lord's Prayer. It's actually the prayer for the disciples. And then giving further instruction encouragement. So I'd like to begin by reading the first 13 verses, even though we'll only look at the first four this morning. And then open in a word of prayer. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, no, If what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray. Lord God, I just ask for Your grace this morning as I am um, sick. And I just pray that Your Word would go forth that You would, by Your Spirit... Um, Open our eyes to see this very passage we've just read. It promises that You will freely give Your Spirit to us and we recognize our need of Your Spirit um, to to understand, to apply, to see the beauty of Your Word. And Lord, as You would teach us how to pray, let us be taught. Let us listen attentively. Let us conform our prayers to Your instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, we're going to look at the first four verses, what is known as commonly the Lord's Prayer. And then next week, we'll look at Jesus' two parables or examples or exhortations to pray. And in that 13 verses, this is the Lord's most focused treatment on prayer. Now, we've got to begin by setting the context of these first four verses. Um, Jesus, we're told, was praying in a certain place. Luke doesn't care that we know where this is. We're on the journey to Jerusalem, that much we know. That, that that corner was turned back in chapter 9. And somewhere on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is praying in a certain place. This has been his pattern up to this point. But more importantly, Luke has highlighted in his telling of this Gospel, Jesus' prayer with key events moving forward in the story. So if you can remember, the first time Jesus is at prayer is as he receives the Holy Spirit being baptized under John. And then Jesus spends the night in prayer And he comes out and he chooses the 12 apostles. And then Jesus is in prayer and coming out of that prayer, we have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus in the first time in the Gospel announcing that he's going to the cross. Luke has been highlighting Jesus' prayer life with key developments in the story and that's no new thing here. Jesus is in prayer in a certain place and the disciple of his comes. We don't know who the disciple is either. That's presumably unimportant. That, that's not. Luke doesn't want us distracted. Or was it Peter? Was it James? It doesn't matter. We don't know. And he asked him a question. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, this is the second time in, in Luke's Gospel that Jesus and his Disciples have been compared with John and his. If you remember back in chapter 5, the Pharisees complained, How come your disciples eat and drink and don't fast and pray like the disciples of John and the Pharisees did? Now, there it was brought up as a negative comparison. Here, Jesus, unnamed disciple, is asking for instruction to prayer. This is a remarkable thing. Presumably, he's seen Jesus' own devotion to prayer. We've been told again and again Jesus would go out to remote places and pray. And now, not presuming that he knows how to pray, the disciples, not presuming they know how to speak to God, ask for instruction. And that sets up then what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to look at it according to its five petitions. Jesus, in giving this prayer, gives five petitions, five prayer requests for our prayers that He gives to His disciples, a model for us. I want to, before we begin looking at those five petitions, make three points. The first, this is not a magic prayer. This is not a mantra This is not something that we are to blindly repeat or say. That's important because I I think we know people who will pray prayers like these over and over with repetition, and Jesus warns in other places in, in Matthew 6 not to pray like the Pharisees in vain repetition, for they think that by their many words they will be heard. Another reason we know that this isn't meant to be some rote, formulaic prayer is Luke's account differs in wording From Matthew's account. Most of you probably know this prayer most fully from Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You'll notice that Luke's account of this, and they're separate accounts, by the way. In in Matthew 6, Jesus is preaching a sermon to a multitude of people. Here, Jesus is alone in prayer just with His disciples. He's asked a question. And so one of the ways we also know this is not a formulaic rote prayer is that if it were, we'd expect it to be word for word identical every time Jesus said it. Now what we do note is the topics, the themes, arrive in the same order. First addressing God and His name being hallowed, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then after addressing God, moving to our concerns... But it's not word for word. Jesus is not treating this. Luke is not treating this as though this were, again, a mantra or a magic spell. The point is this. Jesus, in giving us these five petitions, is giving us five areas to focus in our prayer life. And we would do well not to repeat these blindly, but but I'd encourage you as you go through these petitions and as you adopt this into your prayer life that you would spend some time praying to God in your own words as it relates to your own life on these five themes. That's the use of these things. That's the use of the Psalms. The Psalms, if you think about it, are 150 prayers to God, songs to God. And here Jesus teaching His disciples, and we do get an order. I think the order is important. I think the fact that the first two petitions address God and concerned with Him, and then the last three petitions deal with us and our needs, I think that's important. But, but don't adopt this if, as some vain, repetitious way to, to get chips with God. Rather, Jesus is giving us a path to walk in our prayer life. That's the first thing to note. The second is note that Jesus is assuming in the way He teaches His disciples, this is easy to miss, but it's so obvious, He's assuming that they're praying together. Notice it's all plural, first person plural nouns. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. So the disciple comes and says, Teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches them to pray. And he doesn't say, When you pray, pray this way Lord, give me my daily bread. He says, Give us. Now, certainly, I think we can pray individually. And many other passages in Scripture would make that clear. But one of the things that Luke and later in the book of Acts is stressed, is corporate prayer. Corporate prayer in, in Luke is, and Acts specifically is huge. Let me just read a couple examples. Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. That's what they were doing when they gathered in the upper room waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42. The new Christians, what did they do after Peter's sermon? Devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And then in Acts chapter 4, when the the disciples are beaten and released, the church gathers together on Solomon's portico. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And when Peter gets arrested, what happens? Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him was made to God by the church. And when Peter gets released, he actually goes to the house and they're so busy praying, no one answers the door. My my point is simple. I would encourage you to, to act upon Jesus' assumption. I know that it can be intimidating and nerve-wracking praying in groups, praying together, but Jesus is assuming we're doing this. The model of the church in Acts is doing this. We should be doing this. Praying individually, praying in our prayer closet, and praying together. The, The form of this prayer in its first instance is for corporate prayer, not individual prayer. Yes, we can pray these things individually, but understand it was given in the first instance corporately. And then the last thing I'd like to note before we dive in is even though Luke has emphasized Jesus' prayer life and prayer thus far, this is the last instance of prayer in Luke until the night before the crucifixion in Gethsemane in in Luke chapter 22. Now Jesus will teach on and talk of people praying, but we don't actually see anyone praying until all the way in Luke 22 when he tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation, and he himself prays. So for as much of a feature as there is in this book, we're to get this one 13-verse teaching, this look at Jesus praying, and then that doesn't get picked up again for 11 more chapters. So with all that said as a way of introduction, this isn't a formula. This is first and foremost for corporate prayer, And then this is the last highlighted instance of prayer till the end of the book, virtually. Let's dive in looking at these five petitions. The first, Father, may your name be sanctified. May your name be sanctified. Now, what's problematic here is that hallowed is a word we don't use very often, if at all, except when we recite the Lord's Prayer. It's just a word that's fallen out of cultural use. And it's it's therefore not a very helpful word. I put in sanctified, which is is probably even a better translation, but that also has its problems. Because again, we don't speak of sanctified outside of religious circles. The basic notion of the idea of being hallowed or being sanctified is being set apart as special. Being set apart as other than. We, We just celebrated holy days didn't we and so you didn't go to work on new year's day because it was a holiday a holy day a set apart day this is not a normal day we don't do our normal work on this day it's different it's set apart that's the notion and so when god is holy said to be holy in the first instance that means god is not like anything else and you see that theme throughout the old testament to whom will you compare me we think of holiness in a moral sense. God is morally holy. His moral perfections are unlike everything else, but God is holy in every sense. And so, this prayer is that God's name would be sanctified, would be holy, or holified, or seen as holy. But before we dive into what that means for us, don't miss the very first shocking word Father. That is huge. We so assume the fatherhood of God that I think we miss the radical significance of this. I mean, re- read through your songs; You will not find any individual Israelite referring to God as Father in the Old Testament. You simply won't. David never does it. Now, Solomon, in dedicating the temple, can speak to God for Israel, Lord, you are our father, God's the father of the nation of Israel, sure. But no individual Israelite, even King David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, never refers to God as Father. That simply is a privilege and a right he doesn't presume. And yet Jesus here teaches his disciples that when they pray, they open their prayer, Father. That is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Now, this notion of God as Father has dominated Jesus' description of His relationship with the Father. Just turn back a few verses in chapter 10. In verse 21, look at how five times the word Father shows up as Jesus rejoices in prayer verse 21 in chapter 10 in that same hour he rejoiced in the holy spirit and said i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children yes father for such was your gracious will all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him And Jesus' own prayer life is is constantly, I'm the Son, He's my Father. And now Jesus gives this privilege, in some sense, to His disciples. Remember I told you how Jesus' prayers in Luke (laughs) signal changes or developments in the story. Well, here's a big changing development. Jesus' own disciples' relationship to God now adopts a father-son relationship which is huge. And it assumes three things. Moving moving here somewhat quickly. It assumes, first off, Jesus' choice and revelation. It assumes Jesus' choice and revelation. What did we just read? Verse 22 of chapter 10. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one knows who the Father is, and consequently, therefore, no one can address Him as Father, because you can't talk to and approach in prayer one you don't know, unless the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's what verse 22 ends, isn't it? Chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus has just said this. No one knows who the Father is except me, the Son, Jesus says, and the one to whom I choose to reveal Him. And then when Jesus, less than a chapter later, says to His disciples, here's how you pray. You you talk to God, you call Him Father. What does that assume? It assumes Jesus has chosen to reveal the Father to them. And if you pray to God as Father, what does that assume about you and me? It assumes Jesus has sovereignly chosen to reveal His Father to you. Uh, we're, We're getting to a series in another month or two about election and predestination and sovereignty of God, but just even here, the very fact that they're calling God Father assumes that verse 22 has happened for them. And if you call on God as Father, it assumes the same thing. We only approach God through Christ and we only approach the Father through the sovereign choice and revelation of Jesus. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Secondly, it assumes salvation and adoption. It assumes salvation and adoption. This is a prayer for disciples. This is a prayer for Christians. This is not a prayer of salvation. But this is rather how the saved pray. The very fact that his father assumes that. The Apostle Paul, later in Romans chapter 8, will explain and give the evidence for why it is that no one in the Old Testament refers to God as father, and yet all of the new covenant children of God do. He writes this in Romans chapter 8 You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What the Apostle Paul has just said is the reason that we get to call God Father and David didn't is because we have received God's spirit of adoption and His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. So... Anyone who is rightly calling God Father has Christ's Spirit. That, that's the assumption here that Jesus is, is making. In fact, look at the end of the passage of <clears throat> chapter 11 and verse 13. If then, you who are, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So this prayer and praying like this assumes that Jesus has chosen to reveal His Father to you. It also assumes that you are saved and adopted. It also assumes new covenant blessings. New covenant blessings. Now, there's an old covenant. There's a new covenant. And God's salvation has always been on the terms of faith, not works, by His grace. And yet, the blessings and the benefits of that covenant of salvation are greater in the new covenant. We're going to look at a passage in a little bit in Ezekiel that speaks to that. And one of the blessings that's part of the new covenant is this adoption as sons, is this receiving of God's Holy Spirit. So, as you read through the Old Testament, you see that from time to time, God's Spirit would come upon someone, a judge or a king or a prophet. But it wasn't a permanent indwelling. It was a gifting for service. And yet, all of God's children in the New Covenant receive this Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is teaching His disciples, and again, tying back to this notion of developing a a new step or a new phase in Luke, Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray under the auspices of New Covenant blessings. They're almost here. In six months or so, Jesus will be dead and raised and the Spirit will come. And Jesus is teaching them now how to pray then. That's what He's doing. So this, this type of prayer, this model of prayer, assumes the new covenant. And Jesus' own statement in verse 13 does this well. The Father's going to give you His Spirit. And all of that is summed up in another radical development that Jesus' disciples, that you and I can call God Father. Not just corporately in a sort of national people of God sense, but individually. That we have His Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. So with that out of the way we're who are we speaking to we're speaking to God who has graciously adopted us as sons and daughters and we get to call him father daddy what what are we asking well i already mentioned this before but notice again that there's five petitions the first two all deal with him and this is important so often when we come, we come with our own concerns. We come with what's in front of our eyes, what's, what's distracting us, what's perturbing us, what's making us anxious. And Jesus teaching His disciples here, teaching them in Matthew chapter 6. You start with God. I, I think that's very instructive for our prayer life. When we pray that God's name would be sanctified or hallowed, what on earth does that mean? Well, God's name is more than simply... God, or Yahweh, or the Lord. God's name is a reflection of who He is, His character. Listen, listen to this passage in Exodus 34. Moses is up on the mountain. Israel has sinned with the golden calf. Moses intercedes for them successfully. God won't destroy Israel. And Moses cries out, show me your glory. Exodus 34, 5-7, through seven, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All that is tied up and explained according to Moses' God, telling Moses his name. See, God's name is His character. The Lord. The Lord. A God gracious and merciful, slow to anger. That's tied up in God's name. Yet, a God of justice and wrath. That's all tied up in His name. Who He is. And that then leads to the notion, and we see this in Leviticus 22, that what it means for God's name to be holy is for God's people to treat it as holy. It's not that God's name is pretty holy and Jesus is telling His disciples to pray that it would get really holy. Rather, for God's name to be hallowed is for others to behold it as holy. And so Leviticus 22.31-33 says this, You shall keep My commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane My holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So the notion of God's name being hallowed is the notion that others would see it and respond appropriately and treat it as though who He is and who His person is 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 worthy of reverence, worthy of honor, set apart. That's the notion of why blasphemy is so, so wrong. God Taking God's name in vain is really taking God's name lightly. Without the weight, do it. You treat it like an ordinary name, an ordinary word. It's not ordinary. It's weighty. It's holy. It's special. You don't just throw it around casually. And here, God is calling on us in our prayer life to start with a concern, not for what we want, but a concern for His glory and His holiness. This takes place in two ways. One, we pray that Your name be sanctified by and in us by and in us. If you turn to Ezekiel 36, I'll show you how this works and how it even ties up with the Gospel and with salvation. And so often, um, we emphasize the glorious truth that God sent His Son, that God redeemed us because He loved us. And that's absolutely true. But we're seeing Ezekiel 36, God also redeemed His people for the sake of the glory of His name. And this is a a prophecy written in Ezekiel 36 to Israel in um, Babylon. They've been disciplined because they were disobedient. Pick it up in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they are, they profaned my holy name. So how do you profane God's name? How do you make it unholy? You act sinfully. Conversely, then, what does it mean to hallow God's name? You you don't do that. They profaned my holy name in the peoples, in that people said of them, "These are the people of the Lord." Yet they had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, with which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So, the, the the way God's name is not hallowed is when people do whatever they want. The way God's name is not honored, it's not sanctified, is when you and I and other people just live how we please, do what we want, treat it as lightly. Yes, there's a living God. Yes, He's sent His Son to die for me. Yes, He's got requirements and, and things He wants me to do, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. It's not that important. Keep reading. So, His name is to be sanctified by us, But that prayer is also, in some sense, a missionary prayer. prayer that God's name be hallowed is a prayer that God's name would be sanctified by others also. Look how God ties this together. His concern for His name, His redemption of His people, and the hallowing of His name by others. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations by which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. God is going to redeem Israel. God's is going to bring them back. Where to read that. So that others will honor His name. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your skin, your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God." That's the new covenant He's describing. Why does God bring a new covenant? For the sake of the glory of His name. So that the nations would honor His name. So that His people would honor His name. And we begin our prayer praying for this. Oh God, would You not give me eyes to see who You are so that I would respond accordingly. That I wouldn't treat You lightly. That You would be glorious and big in my eyes. That I wouldn't treat You as some small little thing that I deal with on Sunday morning and maybe Wednesday night, but that You would be the consuming Son of my life. And Lord, would You work that way in me and through me that it might reach to others as well, that the others, the nations, the peoples of the world might see You for who You are, that they would honor and glorify You. That, that's what that opening prayer is for. There's missions tied up in this. Worship, the glory of God. God saved us. He sent His Son to purchase the new covenant because He loved us. He also did it for the sake of the glory of His name. And Jesus teaches us when we come in prayer to pray to one who is our Father, but to start with a concern for His glory. But make no mistake, as people honor and glorify God, they, they, they do that through that covenant. It's for their joy and their blessing as well. But we start with a concern that God's name would be sanctified, in us and through us and by us and by others also second petition your kingdom come and here the blank may your reign come so in the first one i say lord god would you sanctify your name in us would you sanctify your name in others second lord god may your reign may your rule come God is a king, and Jesus has been speaking of a kingdom very much throughout Luke's Gospel. In what way, then, does, does, does this kingdom come? Well, the kingdom requires three things minimally. You need a king. Well, we've got him, Jesus, born king of the Jews, right? We've got a king. You need subjects. Kingdom needs subjects, right? You're not a king if you're not king over anybody. And you need a domain or a land or a region. And when Jesus sent out the 72 to each of the towns, what were they to tell them whether they were rejected or whether they were received? The kingdom of God is drawn near to you. The king and his ambassadors have come. They've, they've invited you to become part of his country, part of his kingdom. Little embassies have gone out as an advance party. And so for those who, had, who, who switch allegiance, Colossians one thirteen says this, that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we become subjects of the King. So what does it mean then to pray your reign come? I think at least two things. One, may you rule in and through us now. May you rule in and through us now. now. There's going to be a lot of parables of the kingdom in the coming chapters of Luke, and one of the things we learn is the kingdom is now and not yet. Um, Probably the simplest example is the parable of the the mustard seed, which when it's first sown is the smallest of all seeds, but eventually it grows up and the the birds of the heavens take nest in it. God's kingdom is present in so much as the king is ruling his people in little embassies. Us gathering this morning is like a little embassy. And yet there's going to come a kingdom and a rule where the son of David will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It will be an absolute and total rule. May your rule in and through us now, point B, may your universal rule come swiftly. So first petition, Lord God, give us eyes to see Your glory and respond to Your name as holy. The second one follows right after it. Lord, let us live and act obediently so that what You require of us, we do that we evidence ourselves as your faithful and loyal subjects. And also, as a desire for that full and finalized and realized kingdom to come. In the book of Acts, the sequel to Luke, Jesus, as He's teaching the disciples before He ascends into heaven, in Acts 1.3, presented Himself alive to them after His sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So forty days he's speaking with them, and a few verses later in Acts one six, Peter asks him just before he leaves. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for a kingdom. They're still looking for the Christ to return and to rule on the earth. Jesus himself spoke of that in Luke chapter nine, when he was warning them that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory the glory of His Father and of the holy angels. That's what's referred refer to this reference to the second coming and to His rule. So first, we pray that God's name would be sanctified, seen as holy, second, that we would act in accordance to that and that God's final rule would come swiftly. That's where we start in prayer. Before we ever get to the things we need, before we ever get to the things that concern us, we're praying about God, His plan, His program. And I think that if we pray that way, And spend some time on those things. By the time we get to our concerns, our hearts might be a little shifted, might be a little different place than they would otherwise. This isn't a magic prayer, this isn't a rote prayer, but the order of petitions is identical in both instances. I don't think that's by accident. Where do we start in prayer? We start with a concern for God's glory, we start with a concern for God's rule. That brings us to the third petition. And 3, 4, and 5 all deal with us. The third petition, continue giving us our daily bread. Continue giving us our daily bread. And that's really the emphasis of the Greek. <clears throat> the assumption is that God is giving us our bread and it's just a prayer that He would continue to do so. Now this is... For us, I think a strange request because we live in a culture in a day where very few of us are day laborers. Very few of us work the day and get paid for the day. Most of us have paychecks weekly, biweekly, monthly. So very few of us know what it's like to not know where tomorrow's food comes from today. And yet that was very much the world in which Jesus lived. The law, if you read the law, has laws that you, you pay the day laborer that day and so two things, I think, from this that we can learn, at least, there's a lot we could unpack here, but two things, is we are praying that God would give us our daily bread, we must look to Him and not grow anxious. We must look to Him and not grow anxious for our needs. Where do we turn when we aren't sure what we're going to eat tomorrow, what we're going to receive tomorrow? We turn to Him. We, we don't turn, first and foremost, to, to other things. And that's one of the things this world has so many God replacements to offer. You want security, you want to be safe, you turn to these things. And here Jesus is teaching his disciples to turn to him and not be anxious. He taught them this same thing when he sent out the 12 and when he sent out the 72. They were to take nothing with them, right? Their mission, evangelistic mission, was in total reliance on Jesus and on the Father. They didn't get to take a money bag. He was training them to rely on Him, to rely on His Father, to not be anxious. In in the next chapter, in chapter 12, Jesus will will teach on this explicitly. Just turn to Luke 12 quickly for a preview of, of what's to come. Verse 22. He said to His disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on it. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? So Jesus is is teaching us to turn to Him, not in fear and anxiety, but to turn to Him for our daily needs. But the other thing to learn here is we must trust His daily provision. And that's the tricky part. If you're like me, I want tomorrow's provision now. I want next week's provision now. I like to know the provision weeks and months before I need it. Right? And I tend to get nervous when the provision for tomorrow hasn't come yet and it's getting later and later in the day. And yet Jesus doesn't train us to pray, Lord, give us next year's provisions. Just give us our daily needs. And God has promised to give us what we need, what we require, but He has only promised to give us today's provision today. I mean, that was the same lesson the Lord was teaching Israel with manna, right? If you tried to hoard it up and gather weeks worth of food, it would rot. God was training them to rely on Him day by day by day. And we can grow so anxious and so fretful over things that are days and weeks away. Listen listen to two passages put together that I think demonstrate this. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 34 Jesus says this, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Every day has a measure of trouble. What Jesus is saying is why don't you deal with today's trouble instead of also hoisting upon yourself tomorrow's trouble as well? Tomorrow will have plenty of trouble for itself. Today's got its own worries. And you harmonize that with with Lamentations chapter three, verse twenty two to twenty-three. Listen to this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So put those two together. Every day has its share of trouble. Every day has its share of anxiety and and things that will tempt us to unease. Every day is fresh mercies. The the challenge we have is I, I, I try to, and I do this, if you're like me, I do this all the time. I will take upon myself the worries, the concerns, the anxieties for tomorrow, for the next day, for the next week. And God has only given me the grace for today. His mercies are new every day. So i got today's grace, and I'm trying to bear with today's grace next week's trouble, and I'm being crushed by it. God never promised to give me the grace today for next week's trouble. And so Jesus is teaching His disciples that yes, we can go to God for our needs. Yes, He knows that we need things. Yes, He cares for us. Yes, He knows that the rents do. Yes, He knows what all those things but there's no promise for weeks and months ahead of time provision. God is, is, is not always early, but He's never late. And so here, we're taught, yes, ask God for your needs. Ask God for your food. He's promised to give you what you need now. His mercies are new every day, and when tomorrow comes with a new batch of trouble, there'll be new mercies tomorrow to deal with that. Continue giving us our daily bread. Four. Number four. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. Now this is another one where I think sometimes Christians can trip up. I've talked to people who, I don't need to ask God to forgive me. He's already forgiven me. What? Do I think He forgot? People can stumble over this. I've heard people, well-meaning people, tell me that after becoming a Christian, after the one time they cried out to God to forgive them, they thought it would be rude to ever ask God to forgive them again. So they don't. You have a problem when, You run into Jesus teaching His disciples to pray this way. So what do we do with this? Well, I think, if you remember the fact that this already assumes salvation, it already assumes adoption, that the forgiveness that's being spoken of here, point A, is not salvation, but relational. Not salvation, but relational. Um, What I mean is this. Prior to becoming a child of God, prior to turning to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, You you dealt with God not as a father, but as a judge. As a lawgiver, as a king, as a potentate. Not just any judge, but a judge you had offended. And so we all had the sentence of death on us, right? We were all headed to hell. Our sins justly condemning us. And we cried out for pardon. And because Jesus bore our sins on the cross, because He took our punishment, the the just and righteous judge could both forgive us and have justice done. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And when you cried out in faith, He forgave you. That happened once. It was never to be repeated. And if that's true of you, you've never stood in danger of, of that verdict being overturned. That is not what Jesus is praying for his disciples to pray here. It's not as though he's teaching us to say, Lord, I know I deserve hell again. Please don't send me to hell. Rather, this is relational forgiveness. Because even though we've been forgiven once for all in God's law court, it's equally clear in the New Testament that our relationship with the Father, our fellowship with him waxes and wanes according to our sin. You can go to 1 John chapter 1 to see that. If, if we say we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we deceive ourselves and do not practice the truth. Remember Jesus washing the, uh, the apostles' feet. And Peter initially says, no, you can't wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then he flip-flops the other way. Well, then give me a bath, my whole body. No, you don't need your whole body. You're already clean. You just need your feet washed. So you and I, when we sin, our fellowship, our relationship with God gets compromised. When we, when we disobey a breach happens in our relationship, doesn't it? We know this relationship in our family. There's, there's nothing any of my children or my wife can do that will ever ultimately make me reject them. But throughout the day, as we sin against each other, our relationship needs repair, right? And we have to go, on, will you forgive me? Yeah, of course. Well, the same thing's true with God. This is the type of forgiveness that's being spoken of um, in chapter 17 when he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. It's relational. It's restoration. And so every day, we're asking God, as we recognize the things we've done that are wrong, according to 1 John one nine, that if we're confessing our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. If we continually are confessing, when we see that we've erred, we bring it to Him and we say, Dad, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And our relationship gets restored. And we're back to walking in the light. And this is wonderful news. If, if you've compromised your relationship with God, you're as... You're as near to restoration as confession and seeking His forgiveness again. Now what's interesting also is this is the only petition that has any sort of warrant or ground connected with it. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now there's there's the other end of this. Yes, God is promising if you'll come to Him with your sin, He will once and for all, forgive you at your salvation. And for the rest of your life, as you confess and come to Him, He will cleanse your feet and He will restore your relationship. Again, not by works, by faith. But the standard to which He promises that is the standard to which we evidence that as well. I mean, imagine that. This is, this is what Jesus says. We should not expect God... To be any more willing to forgive us relationally than we are to forgive each other—that's kind of sobering. Jesus in Matthew drives that point home even further, Matthew six fourteen to fifteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's, that's a sobering thought. If, we're holding, if you're harboring bitterness, resentment, holding a grudge. And notice, he doesn't even refer to it as sins. I mean, the concept is, you can really ultimately only sin against God. When David murders a man, steals his wife, he can say in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. I can be indebted. I can wrong other people. I can sin against God and God alone. So forgive us our sins because we forgive others their debts. They're in totally different classes. And yet the audacity that we might have if we're clinging to these debts... I mean, Jesus tells the parable, right? If the man who was forgiven millions of dollars finds a guy who owes him 50 and is strangling him for repayment. And Jesus is saying, when we come and you ask God to, to wash your feet again, when you ask God to restore your relationship, you better be willing to do the same thing to other people. Consequently, your relationship with God, your walking in the light, may very well be compromised, weak, anemic, or non-existent because of your unwillingness to forgive others. And so Jesus offers this free restoration, this free continuing renewal of relationship, but it's the only petition in the prayer that's linked to any sort of conduct on our part. You can just imagine the hypocrisy of us demanding that others satisfy us, the demanding that others pay us back. We want our pound of flesh. And yet we go to God for the 10,000th time saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. No, let not such hypocrisy be among us. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. And finally, lead us not into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation. Two two things to get from this, quickly. We must humbly recognize our weakness. We must humbly recognize our weakness. Jesus does not say, be bold and say, bring it on. And I think sometimes I talk to people and they almost feel like that, like like knights going out to vanquish dragons. The Christian life, as I understand it, is a small child clinging to his dad's leg because he's scared. And here, we, we don't want temptation. The word for temptation can also be trials. Parasmos It's a trial or a temptation. They're kind of, you know, the trials are the things that bring out temptations. And we're saying, I, I'm weak. Please, please don't try and test me. Please don't lead me into temptation. I mean in 1 Corinthians 10.12, we're warned, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Jesus wants us again and again recognizing our weakness. God, I'm weak you lead me into the right place, I'll, I'll fold, I'll crumble, I'll fall. Please, please, as a good shepherd, lead me to safe pastures. Please protect me and my weakness from trial. There's another point, though, in this. We must com- confidently trust in God's control. Sometimes we like to think that, that, that trials come from the devil and blessings come from God, that the good things come from God and all the bad things come from the devil. If you're praying that God won't lead you into temptation, what does that imply? It implies He's the one who determines whether you get led into trial and temptation or not. Not the devil. He's in charge. Where is Jesus headed when He's teaching the disciples this right now? To the cross. And Jesus will pray, Father, take this cup from me. And the Father says, no father leads him to the cross as soon as Jesus received the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 4 where did the spirit direct him into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil it would be useless to ask God not to lead us into temptation and trial if God never did that so on the one hand recognize your weakness don't don't feel bad and saying God I'm weak I this trial is difficult please remove it that's what Jesus is saying. On the other hand, recognize God is sovereign and He determines and measures out the trials in our lives. We read the verse in 1 Corinthians 10. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. The very next verse says this, No temptation has overtaken you. It is not common to man. And God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted or tested same word beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. See, God's in control of the trial. God's in control of the situation. And this prayer recognizes both. I don't want it, and that's okay. If you're in a trial, it is okay to ask God to take it away. But also recognize He's in control. He measured it out. He poured it into your life, and He will sustain you. He'll give you that grace. Now I'd like to close close our time this morning in prayer Corporately, as this prayer was given, I'm going to lead us in prayer. I ask that you would pray along with me in your your hearts as we, I try to adopt this pattern for us. So let's let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, Father, we come before you, um, not because we have any right to because You have adopted us. Your Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are Your sons and daughters. And so we dare call You Father. And Lord, we ask that You would open our eyes to behold Your glory in Your Word, that we would take You seriously, reverence You as You ought to be reverenced, see You as holy and high and glorified, see You as You are. And Lord, that that vision of You and Your name would captivate us would become the ruling principle of our lives, that everything else orders itself around. Lord, we, we don't see You as You are. So often we see You as small, as boring, as simple, and yet we know that You are the consuming fire. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the one that sinless angels cover their eyes cover their feet and do not cease saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Grant that we might see a sliver of that glory. And Lord, not just us, but that the nations that the peoples of the world would also glorify and see the glory of your name, that your gospel would go forth, that, that men from every tribe and nation and tongue might behold the glory of the Lamb, might behold the wonder and the majesty of who you are in your name, Lord. We pray for that. Lord, we also pray that as your subjects, you would rule in and through us that our lives would be ordered by your word, by your will. That, that we would not profane Your name with the lives that we live, but that we would demonstrate Your rule that this embassy of the Lamb would, would act lawfully, appropriately, as we ought, and that we would evidence Your rule here on earth. We also, Lord, pray that You would hasten the return of Your Son, that, that You would come and set things right, that You would come and rule on the earth and that righteousness would, would be on this land. Lord God, we we pray for that. We pray that you would give us the grace for today, the things that we need for today. And help and teach us to be content with that, Lord. Calm our hearts on the anxieties of tomorrow, the anxieties of next month, next year. And Lord, cause us to look confidently at you your mercies that are new today for today that we would rely on those that we would not turn to other gods that we would not turn to other saviors but we would look to you that you would sustain us and give us the things we need today lord we we also recognize that even even in our time gathering this morning in our hearts the thoughts of our hearts the intents of our minds lord we have not honored you as we ought we pray that you would cleanse us with the washing of your word that you would that You would restore our fellowship with You, that You would wash our feet. But Lord, we also pray that You'd give us hearts to do that to each other, that there would not be bitterness, that there would not be enmity or strife in Your body. You have declared there to be peace among us. Let us keep that peace, protect that peace. Let us forgive as we have been forgiven. And finally, Lord, I pray for my brothers, my sisters, and myself, Lord, that You would guard us from temptation and trial that you would protect us from the evil one that you would let this be a time of of refreshment and comfort and strengthening that we might be ever faithful to you lord god we pray all these things in your holy name amen you are dismissed